Hello, I'm Eric Holderman, and this is Disaster Zone, a podcast about emergencies and disasters. Disaster Zone will bring you interviews and commentaries about all aspects of disasters, from what causes them to how people and organizations are dealing with their impact. As the nation's most active in-person and virtual incident command system and consequence management training company, stop by our website today to address your personal and agency training needs. Go to www.thebluecell.com. This podcast is being sponsored by Dynamis, a leading provider of information management software and security solutions. You can find them at dy. N-A-M-I-S.com. Welcome to the Disaster Zone podcast. With me today is Willie Nunn, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, that's FEMA, Region 10 Administrator. Really, Willie recently made the transition from being a Federal Coordinating Officer at FCO, and note to Willie, we're acronym-free, so you got to say it at least once, to become a Regional Administrator, so that's a nice jump. And we'll be doing a deep dive into what has shaped his personal and professional life uh, in the second half of the podcast. So welcome to the show, Willie. Uh, Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to be here. Yeah, and congratulations on your appointment to be administrator. Ah, thank you so much, sir. Uh, Great to be in Region 10. Yeah, do you um, have off the top of your head, you know, it's not a trick question, but, but... there's some career regions, and then there's some still political appointee regions. You're a political appointee region. So do you know what that division is these days? Uh, yes, uh, regions four in Atlanta, regions uh, uh, five, uh, region six in Denton, Texas, uh, region, uh, uh, let's see, and then region nine in, uh, in uh, 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 California, in Oakland, California. And then there's one more. Um, well, it might be two. Is that two up, up um, in the Northeast? I'm thinking of, uh, oh, she just got sent to the border to help us. I'm sorry, sir. It's uh, Region 3. Region okay. 3. Uh, yeah. With Marianne Tierney in Philadelphia. Yeah, right. right. So I, I met yeah, her. We, we don't think of, uh, I, I, I guess I've been around in FEMA too long. I just think of this as one FEMA enterprise. <laughs> there you go. Do you know it's the the trend going one way or the other, you know, from uh, appointed to you know uh, a political appointee to uh, being career service? I guess is the right term. Well, no, I'm not aware of any trend at this time. Okay. Um, whether the, any of the political appointees are going to be um, uh, regional regions are going to be permanent, uh, but right now it's just status quo as it is. Okay, well, there you go. All right, that's not that's uh, that's uh, pay grade above you, also. So, yes, <laughs> well, uh, well, we uh, we're going to do more of a, a deeper dive. But what's briefly what's been your personal journey and career path that led you to becoming um, a regional administrator? Well, my personal career path in FEMA, you know, start it's been fifteen years. Um, I, I was looking after retirement from the Air Force. I was looking for a job with service that helped people. 
Uh, I was done with the uh, defense industry. Uh, with uh, I didn't I, I wasn't seeking private sector. So FEMA uh, appealed to me. It was uh, FEMA in 2007 was right after Katrina. Uh, we were we were looking at our, uh, at our, our 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 core values. We were looking at how we would respond, recover, prepare, mitigate, and really I just uh, as I researched, I, I fell in love with the FEMA mission, uh, so to speak, um, and. It, it was about service. It was about, uh, uh, as my whole career path has been about service, it, this was about public service. Uh, so I think what's, what's been uh, significant to me is that from a federal coordinating officer to a region administrator, it's all been about relationships. It's making sure we have uh, those good relationships not showing up with your business card like I had to do a lot as a as a federal coordinating officer, uh, but now as a regional administrator is building those relationships before something happens, and and really uh, working together as a partnership team. Okay, all right. And were you the a federal coordinating officer your whole time uh, since joining FEMA until now? Oh, yes, uh, federal coordinating officer, you know, we go through the types, uh, you know, start as a trainee, you can go up to the highest of the type one uh, FCO. I was, I was fortunate enough to become a type one uh, in 2014. Um, and as you, as you go up, also, you get to mentor uh, other FCOs. I supervise other FCOs, and I also collaborated with the regional administrators. Um, uh, one time I had regions eight, nine, and 10. Okay. <laughs> They'll spread you out. They'll spread you out. Okay. Um, well, and some people may not have any idea how big FEMA Region 10 is. So how many states, which states are in Region 10? Well, we have four states. That's Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and Alaska. And within those four states, we got 271 recognized federal federally recognized tribes. So uh, we so we have a little of that Oconus with Alaska and our four Pacific, uh, three Pacific Northwest states. Okay, all right. Um, so you've worked disasters, as you just said, kind of all over the country, uh, regions there. How is FEMA Region 10 different from other FEMA regions? You know, what, what sets the region apart? Um, well, the Pacific Northwest is, as you know, is beautiful uh, with the with the with the natural uh, scenery. Uh, but that's also part of what sets us apart here is our we're not the the, uh, uh, the East Coast realm, where it's a big urban setting. You know, we have our Seattle, we have our Portland's, we have our Boise, but still, it's no it's no big urban settings. We have a lot of small communities also with our tribal nations that we have. So, and our infrastructure, you know, the uh, infrastructure on how uh, to get to our West Coast uh, roads in and out. Um, and in the past, when I joined FEMA, I, I would say region 10 in our states, I would put air quotes and say sleepy hollow as it came to, to disasters. Yes, we had disasters, the uh, small floods, well, you know, we had the bigger ones like in 1980 with the with the Mount St. Helens. Uh, we had the Nisqually earthquake in 2001. 
But in between that, there was very small disasters. But when I started in 07, it seems to pick up uh, where we had more floods. Uh, the atmospheric river uh, started happening a, a, a lot more and a lot more frequent. So it's, we're different in that respect. Uh, but I would tell you, we're more of the same uh, and, uh, in, in other respects of the, of the type of when we talk about emergency management and how we, and how we uh, give assistance to survivors. Uh, it's, it's survivors first. Okay. How about um, whether you, I, I have written down here, where are the challenges unique to the region? You could say hazards. Maybe. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, the, the challenges, yes. It's, it, it, you know, for me, every day in the Pacific Northwest is earthquake season. No, we don't start in June for the hurricane season. Every no. day is earthquake season. Uh, and so we, uh, and so I look at it from that perspective. Um, but then also you throw in the, the, the heavy, uh, like I said, the atmospheric rivers, the heavy rain that leads to mudslides. And as you saw in 2020, we're more prone to fires. Uh, now we had a uh, heavy, a big fire in Oregon. And even before then in 2015, we had, uh, I remember working fires in Washington state uh, as well. And so we are having to respond and recover from and mitigate uh, uh, fire hazards more, more so than in the past. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I've been in the state since 1988, since management since 91. And one of the things I remember when the National Weather Service came out and said, well, we're going to work on heat warning issues for the Northwest. And that this is like maybe 20 years ago. I'm thinking, ah, I don't know about that. Well, last June, the heat dome that covered uh, Portland and Seattle, because you do have heat centers in urban areas. That, that was something else. And that uh, is not something we've experienced before and really have to be ready for. I, it, it was atypical, but uh, yes, it's sir. kind of a calling card climate change. Maybe. Yes, sir. No, who would have, who would have thought 100 and what was it? 116 degrees, I think at peak. Uh, and it wasn't just one day where we had, I think in 2009, I think we went up to about 105, 105, and it was about a day. This one was about two days and, and, and lingered, uh, yeah. which led my family to put an air conditioner into our home. <laughs> that's, that's right. Well, and for people who are saying, uh, well, yeah, we get 100 degrees. Listen, around here, uh, yeah, when I would garden, I'm not, uh, don't, not gardening like I once was now but uh 70 degrees hard work stop man that was hot <laughs> you know and you become acclimatized to this much cooler wetter temperatures so where i might have worked 80 85 degrees before now 70 degrees is hot in the northwest right so really exceptional really exceptional um so uh, willie fema released a new strategic plan at the beginning uh, of this year centered on three goals, climate resilience and readiness. And I got three separate questions. I'd like to you know, take them kind of in sequence on that. So what does an equity informed emergency management look like? How, how does it change your approach to implementing certain policies or programs? Well, one thing I would like to tell you first is that I, I think this region, uh, in, uh, in the Pacific Northwest in general, has always been into equity. And equity meaning 
um, uh, opportunity for access. Access, opportunity to, to serve the underserved and equity for all, not, uh, not just the underserved, but for all. So for what does it look like for emergency management uh, uh, that looks like informed with equity? I would say now we have a focus. Now it's not just Region 10, a Willie focus, it's an agency focus. It's a community, it's a community of government, a whole of government approach focus. Uh, looking at those uh, uh, going into communities, looking at those who, how do we make sure that we don't use one size fit all solutions? Uh, working with the local communities to be the trusted agents as we bring in that disaster assistance. And we've learned a lot with that, with, uh, uh, you know, with the federal government, we're here to help, but who do the locals trust? They trust the local leaders. They, they trust the local uh, minister. They trust the local mayor. And so we reach out to them to get to that community, to make, to meet them where they are. Okay. You know, um, on the equity side, a lot of people think, well, it's minority communities. That is part of it there. But one of the things that's really been driven home to me in the last few years is uh, it's people who don't have financial means that are being impacted. It's those people who don't have property insurance because I, I, I'm, as you can make your statement that a lot of people think FEMA comes in and makes you whole. And definitely, if, if you don't have, if you have insurance, that's your first uh, choice. And then, you know, you guys backfill some, but if you don't have insurance, you're not, I don't know, what's the largest individual grant somebody can get these days? I, I know it keeps going up 30 some thousand, I don't know. Uh, 34,000, uh, 34,000 at, at, at this time, it may, it may fluctuate there, as you said. Uh, but you're totally right. We as FEMA, we don't make pe people whole. This is why this, this focus is so key on equity. As you said, it's not just minorities. It's about those, as I said in the beginning, how do you give opportunity and access for disaster assistance to all? To making sure they have the opportunity to, uh, to utilize those, that disaster assistance. Uh, you know, like you said, uh, some don't have internet, so they can't sign up online. We got to get boots on the ground. Uh, some uh, uh, some uh, live uh, are not approachable. They're off the grid. So we got to make sure that we go off the grid. And so th that one size fit all is out the window. We're there looking at who's, who's vulnerable, who's the underserved, and everyone else. Okay. One of the myths I want to take away from equity, I always want to take away Equity doesn't mean taking something away from others in need. It's making sure that we give disaster assistance to all. Okay, that's, that's great. That's a great statement. So um, I mentioned climate change earlier here. How, how does climate change impact emergency management? Um, and sometimes climate change is looked at like a four-letter word. You know, how, how do you get local governments and states on board when just bringing up the topic can be polarizing in whole communities? I think the, the I think the disasters themselves, the intensity of the disaster, the frequency of the disasters, 
are making that statement for us. It, it's making uh, the, the, the sign of the, the climate change is real. Uh, you know, the, the, more, the, the more strengthful uh, hurricanes that we have on the East Coast. Uh, like I said, our atmospheric rivers, when those, when those uh, storms come in up on the West Coast are more forceful. And so the impacts of erosions on both coasts, East and West Coast, is letting us know that something is changing. And I think if we go with that approach, uh, as we respond to hurricanes, as we respond to uh, the, the mudslides and the floods here on the West, we go with that mitigation approach of how do we mitigate and prepare for that? I've seen firsthand where uh, a storm, a Hurricane Maria, uh, Irma, that hit Florida in 2017, where we did the proper mitigation in the Florida Keys, 120 knot winds uh, there, but buildings that were built to code stood after that storm. And so I, I, I equate that to how can we do this uh, how can we mitigate with, uh, and, and prepare to help our response go better? I think we do that and we introduce that to our communities. Yeah, uh, you know, it's a, my day job, I'm director of Center for Regional Disaster Resilience. And when people say, well, what is disaster resilience? And I say it's a, a spelled mitigation, you know? Yeah. If you're yeah. mitigating the hazards, then in climate change terms, we're in the adaptation business. We're not in the, um, we're, in the in climate, yeah, go ahead. And we're also in the education business. We want our, our workforce has to be educated because if we're educated about climate change, that's gonna, be, that's gonna tell us where to allocate our resources. That's gonna tell us how do we train our, from our technician to our specialist to our leader you know, uh, and, and making sure we respond in proper manner. So it's, a, it's, it, it's all ties together when you mention our strategic plan, you know, it goes back to that equity, that, resilient, uh, that resiliency, and then that workforce readiness. Uh, it, it ties together to make a whole of, whole of effort, a unified effort as we, as we respond, recover, and transition in disasters. What you've primed the pump on the next question, which is about workforce. So, you know, every, every goal in the strategic plan leads with the strengthening the emergency management workforce. Mm -hmm. And my personal observation, uh, well, my question is how has the FEMA workforce changed in recent years in this region and nationally? And uh, what I've seen, there was a huge hiring spree for FEMA. Uh, maybe it's five years ago, maybe a little bit more, but I mean, the regions were really plussed up with a lot of staff and uh, there's just a lot of new, younger uh, millennials working at FEMA now. I mean, it's one thing I've seen. So mm -hmm. uh, from your perspective, what do you think? Oh, see? yes, sir. Yes, sir. I, I think, I think when, when I started in 07, so I got, I'm looking at 15 years of history here, sir. Um, you know, we started we had a bunch of great people with great experience from past careers, you know, the uh, our, uh, lawyers, um, uh, civil engineers, uh, uh, people uh, from Red Cross, uh, from the Corps of Engineers. Uh, and we still get, we still hire to those type things, but I think we're getting more professionalized in what we do as FEMA, what we do as emergency managers, 
in FEMA, and we're hiring to that. What I also think we're doing, we're still working on this hard, is to try to get a workforce that looked like the people we serve. You know, to you know, to and and doing that, I think we bring fresh ideas. We bring we bring a, a different way of doing things, or out of box a way of doing things, uh, and making sure we get to the right and the and the best solution. But what we are also doing is a diversity diversity of professions. You know, the, we, we, we want, uh, I was fortunate because I was in the military. They were looking for military leaders. Uh, I was thankful for that. But I'm also thankful for, we, we're looking at doctors, nurses, policemen, uh, uh, again, those, those people from the, the volunteer agencies like the Red Cross, uh, from the private sector, the, the business owner uh, to come in and to lead teams to respond and recover from disasters. So having diversity, not only in background, but in profession, I think our workforce is, is much better off. Okay. Well, I'm, I, I tell people if I could relive my emergency management career over, I always considered myself an operator. I would have paid more attention to logistics. <laughs> and I don't know if you've ever heard this uh, quote. It was General Honore for Hurricane Katrina, he said, logistics, if it was easy, it would be called taxes, which it ain't easy. It ain't easy. So um, FEMA region and national is really a national level effort, hosted a three-day large-scale rehearsal of concept tabletop exercise. So I'm, there's another one just like last week or so that was a true uh, map exercise out on a ballroom floor. So, but I'm talking about the three-day event. I hopefully you had a chance to participate in that. And uh, so it's focusing on federal resource coordination logistics in the aftermath of a Cascadia subduction zone rupture and ensuing tsunami. What what are some of your takeaways, personal ones from? either that deep dive into logistics or as a federal coordinating officer, you have to see how logistics, uh, operations may be sexy, but if you don't have anything to use or do, uh, it's, it's really challenging. So what's, what's your takeaway on logistics? My takeaway on logistics is, is, is just similar to what you just said. Uh, uh, as as I as people who know me as a federal coordinating officer and now as a region administrator, I said nothing happens without people, logistics, and now I've added money. Yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, you have people to do the concept. You got to have logistics to execute, and then you got to have money to pay for it. But I but going back to your question from the Cascadia subduction zone the rehearsal drill that we had. It was a three-day exercise. And what we learned from that, sir, it was very hard. Uh, very, uh, that logistics, uh, we have to walk through. And that's what that exercise did. As you said, it was three days. It was a 20, 25 by 35 foot map, almost like a risk game map laid out on the floor and with, with uh, Washington, Oregon, and Idaho with the main impacts in Washington and Oregon uh, with consequential impacts up in Alaska, which were not depicted on the map, but but also um, in Idaho being uh, impacted by um, um, with with uh, incoming uh, resources. 
But what that what that told us though is that we have a plan for once this happened, you know, the right side of the incident, that we're going to be starting a movement of resources. But that has to be done because our priority is going to be life-saving, life-sustaining, and enabling those life-saving, life-sustaining. But you also got to, at the same time, enable recovery. And so how do we get the logistics machine in place to do that? And that's going to be a lot with the with the command and control of it, uh, with our uh, unified coordination groups, you know, with the federal coordinating officer, the state coordinating officer, uh, how do we deal with the governors, each one of those states. And, and then myself as regional administrator, working with my, with my national headquarters, all working together in a unity of effort as we do this. So those, the, that logistic piece we learned, uh, one of the big things we learned as we, we talk about on that big map, where do we plan to put things? We went through step-by-step step on, okay, what's coming in? How are we gonna sequence it in? Do we have to have wraparound services? Do they have to come in self-contained? You know, all of those questions that, that you know, we don't, we, we, we don't put what I call air quotes, fairy dust over it and say it's gonna work. We wanna go the last mile to see what actually would take it to go from lift off to sit down to functionally operational and then employment. And, and we went through that in this exercise. Uh, and, and we found everything has to be integrated. Every, what we do in Oregon, what we do in Washington, how we order back at headquarters, how we work with the private sector, because in, in the Pacific Northwest, the private sector is huge and how we work with them and enable them, you know, they, they are going to be a huge partner. We don't want to be setting up a, a commodities pod if there's a grocery store open. We want to make sure that we maximize our efforts here to make sure we get the best bang for the buck. We, we're efficient and we're effective when we try to do this. And so uh, you hear me say a lot about whole community. And so that is a big part of it. Okay. Um, well, we're easily halfway through this here. What we're going to do is take a quick break for a message. But when we come back, we're going to get more into the personal side of the rest of this podcast and kind of dig into Willie Nunn's uh, learning just from growing up uh, in rural Alabama, being in the Air Force, and this uh, transition to being uh, one of the national leaders in emergency management. So stay tuned and we'll be right back. As the nation's most active in-person and virtual incident command system and consequence management training company, stop by our website today to address your personal and agency training needs. Go to www.thebluecell.com. This podcast is being sponsored by Cobra, an emergency management software solution. Cobra provides a cloud-based EOC software that is intuitive, collaborative, and affordable. Visit cobrasoftware.com. And we are back and we're talking with Willie Nunn, FEMA Region 10 Administrator. And I said we're going to make this more personal, less organizational. Is you know, what, what lessons did you learn uh, growing up in rural Alabama that led you to a career in public service? You talked about 
you, you wanted to be in, in a job where you're helping people. So how, how did your, you know, I would say family and community there impact you? Well, um, I grew up in the, uh, I'm, a, I'm a 50s baby. <laughs> uh, so I, I grew up in rural Alabama. Uh, we were sharecroppers. You know, we, uh, we didn't own the land, but we worked the land. And uh, that was how we got our means. And so I was a member of that. Every member of the family worked uh, sharecropping. And I would tell you, that taught me the lesson of hard work, the meaning of hard work, um, and what that means and what that gives you, um, you know, shelter, food. Um, and, you know, the, as I, I didn't think it then, but as I grew older, uh, the self-accomplishment of hard work. Um, and it also, um, my family uh, taught me uh, to respect the authority, you know, to uh, uh, respect authority and, and uh, respect the law. Um, but one thing I would tell you about that sharecropping, it made me love school. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you were in school, you didn't have to be in the field. And so, but I truly love school. And that gave me many opportunities. Um, there were opportunities afforded to me. And I was glad to be able to um, uh, take advantage of the opportunities. Uh, uh, you know, the, we were farmers. So there was this thing called Forage Club in the South. And so I got to combine the two um, and that led to opportunities in education because I competed at the state and local level in Boys Club. And so that got me to see some of the world. So those are opportunities that that hard work in the beginning, uh, good family values, you know, and, 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 and I won't kid you that we're talking rural Alabama in the 60s, um, you know, Part of that respecting authority, uh, I think that was my family taking care of me as well, you know, and uh, but but that's but that's the way it was. And but that I look at the glass was half full. Yeah. It was half full to the point where you should respect um, respect authority, uh, but you need to understand other things as well. So okay. it was I. I, I that's, that's what led me. I've, I've always, um, uh, like I say, I enjoyed school and interacting in school. And, and that's what led me off to do that. Okay. Uh, you know, it's a little bit of a shame. We've lost our agricultural, you know, beginnings that type of thing. Because I, I was thinking about um, a term would mean nothing to a lot of people. I mean, something to you is you'd say, well, that's a long road to hope. <laughs> which means it's a long row that you have to hoe and that you do that with a hoe yep with a hoe not a plow with a hoe no. yeah and yep. the other aspect of agrarian you know type of thing and this was in the set book at seven Habits highly effective people it was called the law of the harvest and that there could be no harvest unless you first plant seeds and so in reality, what you're talking about is um, uh, your family planted seed that is really, right? So Yes, it is. I, and, and I would tell you, uh, I start every, in my Air Force career, in my FEMA career, uh, I start all my mentoring sessions by saying, never forget where you come from. Never forget the value of the lessons that you learn uh, uh, from 
those experiences that you grew up as a child, good or bad, and that they make you. You're right. They, they, those things make you. Yeah. So how, how did your 26 career as an active duty Air Force shape your perspective on emergency management leadership? I, I would say, uh, and someone just asked me with my um, uh, wife's, uh, not wife's, is my sister's husband, they've got a granddaughter thinking about going to the military. And I, I said, well, it would certainly teach your discipline and to respect authority, which you already talked about. But um, how did the Air Force impact you? You walked in respecting authority already. So maybe that's what made you successful also. Well, you know, I, I had no plans of going to the Air Force when I went off to, when I was fortunate enough to go off to college. I wanted to be a lawyer, you know, a defense lawyer. Um, but then, I, you know, the, the reality set then is I still had to pay for school. And then I still had to pay for three more years of law school. And the opportunity to go to uh, ROTC and become a, an officer in the Air Force appealed to me at that time. Yeah. And, and so I would tell you what the Air Force, the, the, the Air Force, uh, the first, right off the bat, it appealed to me. Not so much an authority, uh, uh, but it was the teamwork that had to happen. And it probably had to do with the type of assignment that I, I had. It was a tactical assignment where we were similar to the Army. It was a radar, a radar surveillance group where we had to set up mobile equipment mm -hmm. and where every person mattered. My job as an officer was to talk to airplanes inside our, inside our uh, containers that we had. My, my teammates, one was, a, one was the power. One, one was to make sure that we had, we had every other support mechanism, the communications. Uh, so... I learned early on where in the Air Force, and, and, I'm, and I'm biased to this, but we had officers, me, and we had non-commissioned officer and airmen, which I think the non-commissioned officer were the best in the world, at least at the time when I was in there, because of the training they had to go to uh, and because of the expertise they brought to the, to the table. Um, and to see that and learn that in action, I learned so much from my NCOs. I learned so much from my airmen. I, we all came together as a team to make sure that that radar mission happened. Because if we didn't have power, we had no radar. We had come, we were just a block on ice. Uh, it was, I always saw us celebrating together. And so when I came, as I, as I saw the ad to become a federal coordinating officer, it just jumped right at me. Teams helping people in their worst time leading disasters to go help people. Um, I, because I, when I joined FEMA, I didn't have the emergency management quote unquote experience. I had the leadership experience. I've led squadrons, I've led squadrons into combat. I've, I've, I've done those type things, but I didn't have the FEMA emergency management experience. And I was so grateful that the Air Force gave me the opportunity to know how to be a, a servant leader but the FEMA gave me the tools of how do you how do you deliver that assistance? How do you communicate that assist, assistance? How do you work with teams, which was often a pickup team because you didn't have the same people the same time when you went to the disaster. Yeah. So uh, I I just so, I am just so thankful I decided to join the Air Force. I'm thankful for the people I met on my very first assignments. 
that really instill that teamwork, strategy, tactics, all those type of things. So um, I'm glad you asked that question because um, I, I get nostalgic when I start thinking about it, but I don't have time to think about it in this job. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, you know, it, it's great you mentioned the non-commissioned officer uh, level of leadership in the American military. It's been highlighted in, in this Russian-Ukrainian conflict that the Russians don't have that they don't have a professional non-commissioned officer corps, and that leadership at that level lacking has caused them a lot of issues. And um, so it's great you acknowledge them and how they, they are 360 leaders, right? They lead the subordinates, but they're also helping that new lieutenant. Yes, uh, yes. Do their yes. job. So. And, I see that, and I see that same concept in our workforce. Yeah. You know, FEMA is not the military, never, never has been and never will be. But there are concepts of leadership, concepts of management, concepts of taking care of people yeah. that we can all gain from that. Okay, so before we started this podcast, we were talking about Army and Air Force. Now I'm thinking, Army, if we got a radar set up, we're out there <laughs> elements. And I'm thinking, Air Force is set up in a container. I'm thinking, that sucker's got heat and air conditioning. No, 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 no. no? The, only, yeah. the, only, the only thing that, well, uh, I take it back. You, 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 you nailed it some. The, the, the radar equipment had to be cool. So oh, yeah, yeah. It had to be cool to work. Yes. <laughs> and uh, it was in a container. But where we slept, where we ate, it was intense. We had our own security where I, you know, I, I still remember real quick. I still remember having to serve security and a perimeter, digging my own foxhole. It started oh. raining. All and right. foxhole up with water. So yeah. we're army but i had an army like job well welcome to the infantry yeah yes sir okay so uh we've talked some about or you've talked about some of this array this transition from working as fco to a regional administrator How, how's that field experience now impacting your approach to leading region 10 so because you got the different roles significantly different but how did the FCO experience, which years and years of it, um, you know, map your mind to how you should be a regional administrator. Yes, sir. That's a great question that, because it really, really helped. I'm fortunate I'm coming into, I'm a region, FEMA regional administrator after being in 15 years in FEMA. It helped to the point of it's about how did I form relationships where, where at times I had to do it really quick. As a regional administrator, you know, I work on that every day with my state directors, uh, uh, with, uh, with the governors, the governor office visits uh, that, that, are, that are coordinated, uh, working with our uh, uh, congressional members that <laughs> in each state. And so that really helped me because I had to deal with that as a federal coordinating officer. But on the scale as a regional administrator, you know, now, I get to do the thing I like the most is helping people. I, as an administrator, have to set the tone, the narrative of how we are going to function as a region. Stand with our strategic plan of equity, resilience, and workforce. How do I make my workforce better to make sure that they have a staff that's trained that can go out and do that outreach with our, with our customers, our state and our tribal nations to say, Talk to me about mitigation. Talk to me about recovery. 
talk me to me about preparedness and how do they and how do they do that and how to make sure that we are a lockstep with other regions as well as with our FEMA headquarters so that we're one FEMA and not 10 different FEMAs and not a field FEMA, just one FEMA altogether. Okay, all right. Um, well, last personal question. It, it, you've got a personal motto of people helping people and you've, you've really kind of talked to that, but what's it mean to you and how does it impact your work and how do you, as a leader, try and impress that on the people who work for you? Everything we do involve people. And we, the, one of the things we got to say, we, you talked a little bit about logistics, but it's, uh, yes, logistics, but people first and people always. Uh, and how do I do it is making sure that I got their back. And when I say that is I'm going to make sure you have the training, the tools you need, the support you need, the guidance you need, uh, as in my senior leader's intent on where I want you to go and where we need to go as a team. Um, and again, I truly believe nothing happens without people, logistics, and money. Um, um, and, and, and without that, if we, if we don't take care of people, we have lost the battle. Okay. Uh, I, just, I, I, the, if, I just think if we are to improve anything that we do, we gotta invest in our people. And yep. that's why I like, I, I like our agency uh, uh, having an agency that looks like the people we serve. Okay. And, uh, you know, the way you described it, um, uh, it's something, my daughter's a senior manager at Boeing. Now I told her, you know, your job is not to do, it's to enable your subordinates to be able to do and set the tone. I, I, I strongly believe that find a good organization, you'll find a good leader. Um, if, if an organization is floundering, it's likely the fault of the leader. Likely. Not always. I mean, sometimes circumstances are such that, you know, you're set up and you, it's just, it's a long road to hoe, you know? <laughs> yeah, you, long road to hoe and you hit the nail on the head. Uh, the one thing I may have left out is that empowerment of your people. No. You, know, you, you empower them. If you set them up with the education, with the skill, with the knowledge, with the resources, and you empower them, uh, that organization should be should fly. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's another piece of that Russian Ukrainian thing. The soldiers don't know what the commander's intent is, so they're just out there floundering, right? So, okay. Any final thoughts or advice to anyone who is working now to make their organizations or communities? more disaster resilient. What we're talking outside FEMA. So mm -hmm. what would you tell them? Outside FEMA, again, what makes an organization? And I know I sound like a broken record, but you got to invest in your people. It's how you hire, you know, the, but let's go back. What, what is the purpose of that organization? You know, you look at the purpose and then it's how you hire. And then in, in, in how you hire, invest in your people and making sure they're there for the right reason. Um, and, then, and then you take, no matter what you're doing, whether you're emergency management or anything else, you take that whole of community approach, you whole of government approach. Um, don't do anything in silos. You know, I have, I have leadership meetings where uh, I just had today that I talked about 
one of my main things is I was so impressed as we went around the room and talked to our leaders as they talked to each other. They were talking about an integrated in each. They were integrating each action that they had. You know, I got I got a, I got mitigation. I got grants. I got response. I got recovery. I got mission support. I got external affairs, media. But each and one, each and every one of them, when they reported out, they reported out in an integrated fashion because everything builds on the other. If you have any organization that thinks one, they work in silos, and two, they don't think everyone in their organization is important and has a function, they're gonna fail. Okay. All right. Well, this has been terrific. And I, I just want to say thank you to Willie Nunn for being a guest here on the Disaster Zone podcast. Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure. All right. And it's been great to have this conversation. Someone who's leading all our disaster resilience efforts here in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, perhaps we'll be able to check in with Willie again in about six months, a year, or that hear from him what he's learned because everybody keeps learning. And then I'd, I'd like to talk about building resilient infrastructure communities, BRIC. It's a big program and implementation is gonna be hard. So will you come back, Willie, for that? It'll be, it'll be my pleasure. As you said, I'm always learning and I, I'll be glad to tell you a lot of the things I've learned since, since, we, since we spoke. Okay, great. So lastly, a reminder, everyone be safe. Think about what you can do today to become personally better prepared for the next disaster and to protect uh, children. If, if you think, or if you like this Disaster Zone podcast, please share it with your professional and social media contacts. Thanks for listening and be safe. Tune in again soon for more information on all aspects of disasters. You can also check out the Disaster Zone blog at www.disaster-zone.com.